You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Well, good afternoon. My name is Mike Yaffe. I'm the Vice President for the Middle East and Africa programs here at U.S. Institute of Peace. For those of you who have been here before, welcome back. And for those of you who are new, U.S. Institute of Peace was established in 1984 uh, by an act of Congress in order to have a nonpartisan institution dedicated to the idea and that peace is possible, peace is practical, and peace is essential. And so we work throughout the world bringing programs in which we bring our expertise to resolve violent conflict abroad. USIP has served as a platform for convening policymakers, practitioners, and experts from across various sectors and political viewpoints to tackle some of the most challenging policy issues that our nation faces. This is exactly what brings us together today as we mark the publication of the final report and recommendations of the Serious Study Group. The congressionally mandated bipartisan study group was charged with examining and making recommendations on the military and diplomatic strategy of the United States with respect to the conflict in Syria. USIP was mandated by Congress to facilitate the Syria study group based on the Institute's demonstrated expertise in convening such uh, congressionally mandated studies. USIP appreciates the support that Congress uh, Congress and its, conf and its support from Congress and its confidence in, an, in the Institute to facilitate such deep uh, studies on such deeply complex issues. And with this, I'd like to thank all my colleagues at USIP who helped facilitate the, the study group itself. We have a rich program this afternoon that will feature two distinguished keynote speakers whom I'll introduce in a moment. Their remarks will be followed by remarks from the Syria study group's two co-chairs. Michael Singh, who is Managing Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and Dana Stroll, who is the Senior Fellow in the Beth and David Godev uh, Program on Arab Politics at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The second portion of the program will feature a moderated discussion with some members of the Syria Study Group. But now, I would like to introduce two of the most foremost leaders of U.S. foreign policy, who will be our keynote speakers this afternoon. Senator Shaheen, Senator Shaheen Shaheen from New Hampshire and Senator Mitt Romney from Utah. Both are dedicated to finding bipartisan solutions to the national security challenges facing the United States. Throughout their decades of public service and engagement in US foreign policy, both Senator Shaheen and Senator Romney have sought solutions to make our country safer and stronger. They bring an important perspective on the long-term causes of and challenges of reducing violence in Syria and the Middle East more broadly. Senator Shaheen led the bipartisan effort in Congress to establish the study group. Simply put, we would not be here today without her, and so we're grateful for all her efforts. Senator Shaheen was, the driving, was, was driven by the seriousness of the threats that the United States and our allies continue to face from the violence and instability in Syria. Senator Romney is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Near East, South Asia, Central Asia, 
and counterterrorism. Two days ago, he chaired a hearing with the serious study group co-chairs, Michael Singh and Dana Stroll, to discuss the report recommendations with his fellow senators, including Senator Shaheen. Senator Shaheen and Senator Romney, thank you for joining us today. We are grateful for your dedication to ensuring U.S. security abroad and for your leadership in the Senate. I invite Senator Shaheen to the podium, followed by Senator Romney. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you, Mike. Um, thank you all for waiting for Senator Romney and me. We had a number of votes, and so I appreciate that we're starting a little later, but hopefully I know it's a discussion that all of you have been waiting to participate in for a long time. Um, and I'm pleased to be joined by Senator Romney. As you heard, we had the first hearing on the Serious Study Group report um, this week, and hopefully it will be, it is only the first of many actions that we will see in Congress and in the Foreign Relations Committee to address, hopefully to implement the rec recommendations in the report. I want to begin by expressing my gratitude for all of the amazing efforts of Michael Singh and Dana Struhl. Thank you both so much for your work co-chairing the Serious Study Group. And I so much appreciate all of the work of all of the members who served with you on the study group. It, it took nearly three years of hard work and perseverance to convince uh, my congressional colleagues that we needed a bipartisan objective assessment of what was happening in Syria. And I want to credit my own foreign policy team and um, all of the other staff in the Senate for the hard work that they did to move this study. So some of them are here. Thank you all very much. Um, having just reviewed the recommendations from the report, I can tell you that it was well worth the years that it took to get here. I only wish we had been able to get it done several years ago. As the Serious Study Group report makes clear, the conflict represents one of the most devastating tragedies that the world has ever seen. More than 500,000 Syrians have been killed since the onset of the war in 2011, and according to the United Nations, an additional 1,000 civilians in northern Syria have lost their lives in just over the last four months due to Syrian, Russian, and Iranian airstrikes and ground attacks. The conflict has spurred the largest migration crisis since World War II, with over 5.6 million people seeking refuge in Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, and of course across Europe we have seen the migration that started with the conflict in Syria that's led to so many other um, unexpected consequences because of that. And of course millions more have been displaced inside Syria. We've also witnessed one of the worst humanitarian crises of our time, with vulnerable populations in Syria suffering from inadequate access to humanitarian assistance, basic things like sanitation and food. And of course, the crisis has resulted in increased rates of gender-based violence, including rape, domestic violence, sex trafficking, child marriage, and child labor. And while one would think that what was happening in Syria alone should have spurred international action. It should have resulted in more action in the United States. 
the path toward a political settlement towards trying to intervene in Syria has really been marred by uncertainty and by an unwillingness of the international community to engage. So working with many of my colleagues in the Senate, including the late John McCain, who helped bolster support for the Syria study group, um, we worked to try and put down a predicate that says that U.S. leadership is essential to stability and a rules-based order across the Middle East and in Syria. And time and again, we've seen that when the United States cedes its leadership, those who oppose our values and that rules-based order are all too willing to step in, and Syria is a perfect example of that. So in 2013, along with my colleagues on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I voted in favor of a resolution that would have authorized U.S. military action against Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in response to his use of chemical weapons. And I think it's important to give a little of this past history um, because it helps explain how we got to where we are today. That vote passed in committee 10 to 7, but the resolution was never considered on the floor, either in the House or the Senate. And our failure to act in response to the poisoning, the chemical attack on the Syrian people, was heard by both non-state actors, belligerent non-state actors, and other countries. After that, we saw Russia move into Syria in a bigger way, and we saw Iran become increasingly aggressive as it worked to prop up the Assad regime. And then in 2014, we heard the devastating news that James Foley, who happens to be a constituent who was raised in New Hampshire, a constituent of mine, that he was beheaded by ISIS, along with his fellow Americans, Peter Kasig and Stephen Sotloff. And it was really those actions, I think, that brought ISIS to the attention of the world. And by 2015, ISIS controlled an area roughly the size of the state of Indiana in Iraq and Syria, their caliphate, and they raised over $1 billion a year in revenue, attracting over 40,000 people from more than 100 countries to join ISIS' violent cause in Syria. And of course, as we know, unfortunately, the ISIS problem in Syria didn't stay in Syria. ISIS coordinated and inspired its followers to conduct widespread assaults against civilians worldwide, including in the United States. And you know, I, I remember sitting in some of those classified briefings in 2013 and 2014 as we're hearing about the rise of ISIS and thinking, how did Al-Qaeda morph into ISIS and become so many thousands strong without somebody blowing the whistle? without somebody in the international community, without us, without our military blowing the whistle on that. Um, so we are here, I think, because of the failure of American foreign policy and because of the inaction of the international community. That is what has led us to this point. And it's what really gave rise to the idea of creating the serious study group. So we would have some sort of objective, more objective look at what we should do, and an assessment on how to respond. And while I had hoped we'd have this assessment several years ago, as I said, given President Trump's 
announcement that he wants to withdraw from Syria um, last December. I think this report and its recommendations have come um, in just the length of time. I agree wholeheartedly with the authors of this report that the United States, even with its limited footprint, has achieved extraordinary gains in Syria and that it would be foolish to let all of that go now. In fact, Assad only controls 60% of Syria's territory, with much of that territory suffering from a proliferation of criminal gangs and poverty. And in fact, it may be, as the report suggests, that the greatest humanitarian disaster in Syria is still before us. With escalated attacks since late April, the Syrian regime and its Russian and Iranian allies are threatening a population of approximately 3 million in Idlib province, and two-thirds of those people are women and children. In other parts of Syria, we're seeing the emergence of a rapidly developing ISIS insurgency that we must address, and to suggest that we have solved the ISIS problem and we can go home and not have to worry about it is um, just not looking at the situation as it exists. Some 18,000 ISIS fighters remain mobilized throughout Iraq and Syria, and another 10,000 are tenuously jailed in prisons throughout northeast Syria. You know, I, I had the opportunity to visit Iraq last April, this past April, and one of the things we heard very clearly from our military leaders who were there and from the Iraqis is that ISIS fighters are still there and they are just biding their time. They are just waiting to see what we're going to do, what the coalition is going to do. And the Iraqis were very clear that they remain a constant threat to stability in Iraq. Now, that's why it's so exciting to see what we were able to do working with some of our coalition allies in northeast Syria. And I got to witness the effect of our leadership in Syria firsthand. Last summer, um, I visited with Lindsey Graham, uh, Syria, northeastern Syria. And I actually went there because I've been working with the families of James Foley and the other Americans killed there because they want to try and bring the terrorists responsible for those murders back to justice in the United States. And we think we know who some of those terrorists are who killed James Foley. Um, they are being held in detention in Syria, and the families would like to see them brought back here to justice. So Senator Graham and I went over initially to try and see what we could find out about where they were being held, about how secure they are, and about the potential to bring them back to the United States. But what I found when I got there was something that I was not at all expecting to see, and that was a northeastern Syria that was seeing a return of refugees who had left that part of the country. It was, um, we went into Mambage. We saw, walked through the marketplace without any body armor on, um, talked to the merchants who were in the marketplace, um, traveled along the road, saw the farms that were beginning to come back, very rich farmland, um, and met with some of the leaders in Mambage in a restaurant 
sat down and talked with the SDF commanders and with the local Arab councils. And everywhere we went, what we heard from the Syrian people that we talked to was, please stay. Don't let America leave. Make sure you stay. We need you there because we are finally seeing some stability return to the country. And, you know, we traveled along the road and children walking along the road were flashing V for victory signs at the American troops when they saw us. Um, so I came back not just with information and thoughts about how to address the detainee situation, but I came back convinced that the effort that we were putting in northeast Syria, the 2,000 or so troops, the $200 million in stabilization money that is there, um, is making a huge impact, and it would be a terrible mistake for us to leave, to leave Syria to the Russians, to the Iranians, to Assad, to the brutality of what continues to be one of the worst humanitarian conflicts that we've seen, um, to we're not sure what will happen with Turkey along the northeastern border, to abandon our allies and partners, the Syrian Democratic Forces. So I am in wholehearted agreement with what the report says with those recommendations. And it is clear, in my mind anyway, that those American troops, those diplomats who have been there, continue to serve as a shield against the ISIS cells that are operating in northeast Syria, continue to serve as a shield against total abandonment of Syria to Russia and Iran, and a recognition that while the president may believe that ISIS has been defeated, that conditions on the ground in Syria and across the world paint a very different picture. And if the United States diminishes its presence, we run the risk of enabling a resurgence of ISIS. We run the risk of the capitulation or all-out destruction of our partners in the region and the eventual loss of the resource-rich territory that the United States currently helps to control. And unfortunately, instead of leveraging those gains, as the report suggests we can do, this administration has chosen to squander them. And we are again faced with uncertainty in Syria. And again, that's what I believe this report tells us, that we have an opportunity again to stand strong at the negotiating table, to be in a position where all of our allies are willing to listen to us. But we've got to take some definitive actions. We've got to breathe new life into the policies that got us into Syria in the first place. And we should not cede those hard-fought gains to Assad, to Russia, and to Iran. And that ultimately, the United States and the President should recognize that our leadership is essential to completely defeating ISIS and to helping to address the terrible humanitarian situation in the Middle East and in Syria. And one of the lines that I like best from the report asserts, and I quote, no one argues that withdrawing U.S. troops would make ISIS less likely to regroup 
or Iran less likely to entrench itself, end quote. Bringing an end to the horrific violence in Syria, which has put so much pressure on our allies, should be our main focus, working with the international community. And I believe that the authors of this report have played a critical role in helping to lay out, once again, the arguments for why that's in America's interest and how we can actually move the ball forward in Syria in a way that's positive, because there is still time, there is still room for America to achieve its aims by working with our partners and securing peace in the region. The challenge now will be to ensure that we begin to implement the recommendations in this report, that we heed the bipartisan call of this serious study group and its recommendations. And I can tell you that at least today, not only have we had a hearing this week on the report, which I think begins to give us a blueprint for how to move forward, in Congress, but one of the recommendations, the creation of the ISIS detainee coordinator, is in the National Defense Authorization Act, so that should pass as soon as we pass the NDAA this, this year, which should be sometime next month. And we're also beginning to see some of the actions of some of our allies on addressing the issues that are raised in the report. I heard this week that Germany is beginning to put on trial some of the Syrians who are in Germany for crimes against humanity. Um, I think that is another sign that this is uh, an international issue. It's important to the international community and that for the United States to continue to be relevant, we need to stay at the table. We need to exercise leadership and that's what this report says. So. Congratulations again. Thank you all very much for your work and for the opportunity to speak today. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Appreciate the fact that you and Senator McCain worked very hard to put this study group together with, uh, with obvious uh, uh, significance and, uh, and results which are helpful to all of us. Uh, thank you also to Michael and uh, Dana for the work that you've done in leading this study group. I had the privilege of listening to you uh, in your testimony before our subcommittee this week. They are extremely um, expert and, uh, and thorough in their analysis and I think made very compelling cases for a way forward in Syria. Uh, the great debate which is going on that relates to Syria but also to our affairs throughout the world is what it means to uh, pursue our national interest. And what our national interest um, uh, means with regards to Syria and other places in the world. And there is certainly a stream of thought, which is there's all sorts of bad stuff going on throughout the world, including in Syria. And if we're really caring about America, we should just get the heck out of there and let them do to each other what they're gonna do. That, frankly, was the attitude uh, in our country before the Second World War to a certain degree, which was, uh, you know, let's just get out of these messes over there, let those people who've been fighting for centuries keep on fighting, and let us come back to a place where we have enjoyed a great deal of peace, relatively. And, uh, and following the Second World War, as you know, um, Harry Truman and Dean Acheson uh, sat down and, uh, and described a new American foreign policy. In, the, in Dean Acheson's book, President at the Creation, uh, it basically said there are three major elements of American foreign policy going forward. Number one, we're going to be involved in the world, 
Because when we're not involved in the world, things happen which ultimately draw us in. Because no nation is truly an island. Well, I guess there are some that are literally island, but, but, uh, uh, but uh, from an allegorical standpoint, no nation is truly an island. And uh, we are connected to the rest of the world. And if we're not involved, bad things will happen that influence us. Number two, uh, we should share our values with others throughout the world and, uh, and encourage them to adopt uh, human rights that we find acceptable and, and various freedoms and so forth. And then, uh, then number three, we should be strong. And we should be strong so that our influence in the world uh, is, uh, is as great as it can possibly be. And by the way, our strength is enhanced by linking arms with other nations. That we can only be so strong uh, today based upon our own scale, but ultimately other nations are going to be large. China, for instance, will have a much larger economy than ours someday, unless there's some kind of discontinuity that occurs there. Uh, they'll have a much larger economy, large, larger military than ours someday. So linking arms with our allies becomes uh, essential. That's been the foreign policy for, well, up until more recently. And now the question is, well, should that continue to be our foreign policy? Or should we just get out and come home? Now, the study group looked at <clears throat> the circumstances in, uh, in Syria and said, we've got to look at this carefully. And, uh, and, and Senator Shaheen, I think, very thoroughly described those circumstances. Hundreds of thousands died. About a half a million people died. Uh, 5.6 million people, refugees around the world. It's an unthinkable number, 5.6 million. Six million displaced within Syria itself. I mean, these are just unthinkable numbers. And uh, 86 deaths of our own men and women in uniform, whose memory we hold very dear. Uh, and, uh, and these facts are not just devastating from a human standpoint, a humanitarian standpoint. They also have dramatic foreign policy implications and impact us. So when six million people become refugees throughout the world, many of them going into Europe and into nations, Turkey and others that are friends of ours, it either strengthens them or weakens them. It makes them in many cases weaker uh, and, and subject to a, a greater burden. And if they're weaker and they're our allies, then our effort is weaker. These things have an impact on us. When they go into Turkey, and Turkey is upset with us linking with the Kurds, and we're working with the Kurds to try and, and fight forces within Syria. If Turkey, which has been our ally and a member of NATO, is angry with us, again, we weaken ourselves. It's remarkable how things going on in Syria impact our capacity to stand up our interests here and around the world. Now, what was interesting as I read the study report, uh, and I'm sure you've had the chance to do so, is an underlining of things which I think has not been foremost in the American uh, psyche. One is that ISIS is not defeated. Its territory has been removed, but that ISIS continues to be active. Um, uh, two is that it's not just active spread out throughout the population in, in, uh, in one corner or another, but instead uh, it's active in some of these refugee camps. One camp, 70,000 people in the camp, and overwhelmingly becoming radicalized. Um, I was in Iraq uh, earlier this year, and they've got ISIS fighters in Iraq. They're in various communities in Iraq, and the Iraqi government wonders, what do we do with these people? As they go back to their homes... Will they radicalize these communities and go after Iraq, where obviously we have a, a huge interest? Um, Assad continues to use chemical weapons against his people. What does that say about what's going to happen in the world that we're going to live in? It, does it become acceptable 
for nations to use chemical weapons? Is there no consequence on the global stage of people using chemical weapons? What does that mean for Americans and our friends around the world if it is acceptable, not punishable, to be using chemical weapons? Um, 2,500 Iranian troops in Syria. Clearly, Iran looks at Syria as a key part of its global strategy to dominate, become the hegemon of the, of the Middle East. That has consequence for us because of our trade there and also our relationships with nations like, like Israel and Iraq and so forth. So uh, uh, Iran clearly continued to play a very key role there. Russia, Russian mercenaries. I mean, do Americans know that Russian mercenary troops attacked American troops in a battle about a year ago, a little over a year ago? Uh, Idlib, a province of, of Syria where there are some three million people which are surrounded by or, or uh, have been infested by various terror groups. Uh, not just Al-Qaeda, but ISIS and other groups of various kinds. So you've got three million people, a humanitarian disaster on the making, but if they rush into Turkey, we'll have an additional refugee problem. It's, I mean, there are extraordinary elements that the study group went through that, that suggest there's a lot going on there that will have an impact not just on the lives of the people there, which is an enormous concern for any human being, but they will have an impact on America's interests. And I think that the key recommendation of the study group was this matters to us. It doesn't just matter to them. We're not involved in the world just because uh, we're, we're only concerned about them. We're also concerned about us. And in my view, being dramatically concerned about the interests of the people of the United States of America means that we need to be involved in the world. And we need to promote our values in the world. And we need to strengthen ourselves every way we can. Stronger economy here, stronger balance sheet, stronger relationships with other nations. If we're really in favor of America and focusing on American future, then we want to be involved in the world. And Syria is a case in point where being involved is absolutely critical. And to say, gee, let's save the cost of 2,000 soldiers. We have some 600,000 fighting men and women, but let's get those 2,000 home to save that money and say we got out of Syria. With the consequence of doing so could be so dramatic, not just on them, but on us. Given that fact, we need to be shouting from the rooftops, don't pull out, don't look at such a narrow analysis of what it means to have American interest at the forefront. Think about what our interests are long term and what the implications will be of these decisions. So I applaud the work that you're doing. I, uh, I look forward to being part of those uh, voices that will uh, continue speaking about this. And uh, uh, Senator Shaheen and I, as we were sitting getting ready for this uh, conversation, said we got to see what we can do to actually get the administration and, and Congress to, uh, to buy into this and to promote some of these policies. Uh, I don't think we have an answer as to how to make Syria all nice and neat. I mean, I appreciate the work that this group did, but, but you know, they're saying here's the next step and, and don't do that and don't do that and do do this. But how we make this all work out, I don't know. But I do agree that just walking away is not the right answer, not for Syrians, not for our fellow human beings that are children of the same God, and certainly not for the United States of America. Thank you so much. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, we want to 
just start by thanking all of you for being here, for taking your time. It's a, it's a busy week, obviously, in Washington. Um, but we appreciate everybody who's come out for this um, to focus on this issue. Everyone who's watching the webcast, um, thanks for, for sharing this time with us. Um, it was, I'm Mike Singh. It was my honor to serve as uh, one of the co-chairs uh, alongside my uh, colleagues of the Serious Study Group. And uh, I first want to express my appreciation for Senator Shaheen and Senator Romney uh, for their comments. Um, I don't think uh, I can say much uh, more that hasn't already been said, but I want to uh, express appreciation for their comments. I think it's so important um, that we have not just experts, not just activists, not just officials who are involved in this, um, but also leadership um, on the Hill, political leadership. And so we appreciate that deeply. So um, I want to start just by talking a little bit about something which, frankly, you've already heard about from Senator Romney and Senator Shaheen before I hand things over to uh, Dana Struhl, my co-chair. Um, our charge on the Serious Study Group uh, that we received from Congress was to provide Congress and the administration with two things, essentially. One was an assessment of the situation in Syria, and the report does that. Uh, the other was a set of recommendations for U.S. policy, and those are featured in the report as well. But we among the group decided that there was really a third element that needed to be included in this that we couldn't just take for granted, and that was this question of why should Americans care about this? Why does Syria matter to the United States? And um, a lot of this you heard from the two senators, but I want to echo a little bit about what they said, but I also want to go backwards a bit, because I think to understand the answer to this question, to understand where we are today, you also do need to go backwards a bit. Um, the conflict in Syria, which is really now an intersecting series of conflicts, started as a peaceful uprising in 2011 as part of the so-called Arab Spring. And um, it progressed in, in a very negative way from there. In April of 2013, ISIS moved from Iraq into Syria. I think these days, you know, if you look at coverage of this conflict, you can almost think that it started with ISIS. Obviously, it didn't start with ISIS. Uh, it, ISIS came in only a couple of years into the conflict. August of 2013, um, you had the gassing of uh, Syrians in the suburbs of Damascus by President Assad, which uh, triggered the whole red line incident. In August and September of 2014, um, as Senator Shaheen talked about, you had the brutal executions, the brutal murders of James Foley and Stephen Sotloff uh, by ISIS. In September of 2015, you had the intervention into Syria by Russian armed forces, which has proven so decisive and so bedeviling to us to this day. And all along the way, you had the exodus um, of refugees driven from their homes in Syria to neighboring countries, to the shores of Europe uh, and elsewhere. And all along the way, you've had hopes within the U.S. government, within other governments, uh, in other quarters, that somehow we could just avoid this conflict. Um, you'll, many of you will remember back in around 2013 or so far, we talked about cauterizing the conflict. Um, we've talked about sheltering ourselves from the impacts of the conflict. But as the senators mentioned, we haven't been able to shelter ourselves from the impact of this conflict. And I think the group was unanimous in feeling as though that will continue to be true. There are vital U.S. national interests at stake in Syria. And we detail this in the report. You have terrorist groups finding safe haven uh, in Idlib, some of which uh, are actively engaged in plotting externally. You have ISIS morphing into an insurgency uh, in northeastern Syria. You have Iran entrenching itself and seeking to project power via Syria. 
something that it's done in the past but is doing in a much more determined way today. You have Russia using its intervention in Syria to reestablish itself uh, as a significant player in the Middle East and to try to undermine American interests and prestige in that region and elsewhere. You have refugees straining the economies uh, of neighboring countries and roiling politics uh, in Europe. You have international norms being smashed, as Senator Romney said, um, by the behavior of the Assad regime, Russia, uh, and Iran. Whatever your preferred strategic framework, whether you're concerned about terrorism first and foremost, as we had been for so many years, whether you're focused on great power competition, uh, as is increasingly the case amongst national security circles here, this is a conflict where those two things converge, where they come together. Um, it could yet get worse, as our report details. Um, we're very concerned, uh, as a group, about the possibility of a massacre and a new exodus of refugees from Idlib, um, and the possibility, frankly, that those refugees wouldn't have anywhere to go, since so many of them have come to Idlib as internally displaced persons. Um, we're very worried about still the potential for a Turkish incursion into northeastern Syria, which could not only cause more tensions between the U.S. and Turkey, but bring Turkey into conflict with the SDF, um, with all the consequences for the U.S. military presence. A wider war between Iran and Israel remains a possibility. We've already seen some ominous spreading uh, of the conflict between the two, and of course that could become more pronounced. And in the areas that the regime has retaken, um, you could see, I think, a reigniting of the civil war because the control that's being exerted there uh, is brutal but tenuous, I would say. Um, our group was unanimous uh, in the judgment that we cannot ignore this conflict, that this is important for Americans, and we've tried to make that case because really, I think at the end of the day, good policy is going to have to follow from people being convinced of that, that this matters to American interests, as Senator Romney said, as Senator Shaheen said. Um, with that, I just want to say thank you. Um, thank you again to all of you for being here. Thank you to um, Dana, my co-chair. Thank you to all of our group members um, who were true experts, um, very collegial, um, and worked very hard on this report. We're also cognizant um, that we received an amazing uh, level of support from the U.S. Institute of Peace, and so we thank their staff, and I'm sure Dana will echo this. Um, but we're also cognizant that, you know, we are, we really represent our peers. There are so many great experts around town in this audience, I'm sure, um, who have been working very hard on these issues, who continue to work hard on these issues, and will long after this report is published. Um, and what we hope is that we can also help to shine some light on their work and bring it some attention. And so thank you uh, to all of you. Thank you, Mike. Good afternoon. So as Senator Shaheen said, last year, Congress directed the Syria Study Group to form an assessment of the political and, mil and military status of the Syrian war and provide recommendations for the way ahead. Today, we are proud to present a report that represents the consensus of all 12 members. It is a bipartisan plan for action. Now, nothing else is going on in Washington, so I know you all have read the entire report already. So this will be a review. I'm just gonna hit the top line conclusions that we wanna make sure are imparted to everyone here and everyone watching on the live stream. Assad has not won the war. Areas under his control are riddled with crime and poverty. Civilians are subject to conscription, forced disappearances, and execution. Conditions are set for the next phase of conflict. The political process is stalled. 
The announcement earlier this week of the formation of a constitutional committee may hold progress, but it is too soon to tell. To date, Assad has not demonstrated willingness to make meaningful compromises. His offensive in Idlib makes it painfully difficult to conceive of momentum toward a negotiated settlement at this point in time. ISIS is not defeated. You've heard this over and over and over, so let me say it again. ISIS is not defeated. The US-led military effort successfully pushed ISIS out of the territory it held, but the group has transitioned to an insurgency. Meanwhile, Al-Qaeda is still active in Syria. The ISIS detainee population is a few prison breaks away from refilling its ranks for the next phase of battle, and the US-supported Syrian Democratic Forces are resource-constrained in securing this population. Iran. Iranian boots are not leaving Syria, despite US sanctions and Israeli strikes. In addition to its military campaign, Iran is entrenching itself in Syria's economic and social fabric for long-term influence. Russia has exploited its intervention on behalf of Assad to contest U.S. influence and leadership. Turkey. U.S.-Turkey ties are immensely strained, and U.S. support for the Syrian Democratic Forces is a leading factor. A Turkish military incursion into northern Syria will provide ISIS with the opportunity to reconstitute. Joint U.S.-Turkish military patrols right now in a mutually agreed-upon area prevent this scenario for the time being. The scale and scope of human suffering over the course of this conflict have set a depraved new standard for the 21st century. The parties responsible, Assad, Iran, and Russia, have faced no meaningful consequences for the use of chemical weapons and barrel bombs, torture, starvation, and intentional targeting of civilian infrastructure. Informing our recommendations, the Syria study group was realistic regarding the limited appetite in the United States for significant increases in military or financial investment. We are proposing a strategy that strengthens key elements of the current approach, calls for reinvigorated U.S. leadership, and prioritizes resolving the underlying Syrian conflict. The tools for the strategy are already on the table, already on the table. A U.S.-led international coalition against ISIS limited U.S. forces on the ground, capable local partner forces, sanctions, assistance, and diplomacy. But effective and appropriate resourcing of these tools is necessary to align U.S. ends and means. To start, we recommend the following steps. Stop the U.S. military withdrawal from northeastern Syria. Strengthen U.S. sanctions on Assad and his backers and make them multilateral lead ongoing diplomatic isolation of the Assad regime, spend the $200 million in U.S. stabilization funds already approved by Congress, continue to withhold reconstruction aid to the parts of Syria under Assad's control. Concurrently, the U.S. must continue to provide humanitarian assistance to Syrians inside and outside of Syria while shoring up vulnerable refugee-hosting partners and host communities on Syria's borders. We as a group acknowledge that this strategy will not lead overnight to the elimination of ISIS, the removal of Iran from Syria, or a political settlement that ends the war. But this mix of tools, combined with consistent, high-level, and credible American leadership, will provide leverage to shape an outcome protective of core U.S. national security interests when conditions are conducive for a negotiated settlement to end the Syrian conflict. Finally, in our report, the Syria study group offers a vision for an end state for U.S. policy in Syria. 
It is a Syrian government viewed as legitimate by its own population, capable of ending dependence on foreign forces and able to eliminate the threat from terrorist groups emanating from its territory. Syrian citizens would therefore need to not fear the Assad regime, Russia, Iran, or ISIS. Such an end state, in our view, requires an updated social and political compact. We are going to get into the details of our report's assessment and recommendations in the panel that's about to happen, but first, just a few more thank yous. The work of the Sirius Seti Group would not have been possible without the support of Congress and, in particular, Senator Shaheen. The 12 members of Congress who named members to the group put together a deep panel of expertise and committed colleagues. We're deeply grateful to Congress. The USIP team facilitating the work of our group has been nothing short of tremendous. In particular, Executive Director Mona Yakubian, our Chief of Staff Cheryl Saferstein, as well as Jude Hassan, Grace Mahkul, and Greg Johnson. Thank you so much to the USIP team, as well as USIP President Nancy Lindborg and Vice President Mike Yaffe. So I'd like to personally thank Mike Singh, my fellow co-chair, who has been a tremendous colleague but also a partner over the course of these Serious Study Group's uh, work. We also welcomed an honorary 13th member to the Serious Study Group, my son, uh, who came, came into the world about 10 hours after our first set of meetings. He was very punctual, and I really appreciate he didn't come before uh, the first set of meetings. So thank you, Mike, for supporting me um, through a wild adventure. And finally, thank you to the members of the Serious Study Group for your diligence, commitment, and collegiality. Would the members of the group who are here today please stand and be recognized? Thanks very much. And now we're going to move into the next uh, session of, of this event, and we're going to have four members of the CRE study group join us for a panel discussion. I'm pleased to welcome to the stage four members of the CRE study group. We um, have Kim Kagan, founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War, Melissa Dalton, senior fellow and deputy director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Van Surchek a senior adjunct fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and Fred Hoff, diplomat in residence at Bard College. Thank you all for joining us on this panel today. What we're going to do, I'm going to ask two rounds of questions, and then we're going to open it up to the audience for your questions. So without further ado, Kim, our report states unequivocally that ISIS is not defeated and in fact has transitioned to an insurgency. Why does ISIS remain a threat and why should U.S. forces not leave Syria at this point in time? Thank you so much, Dana, and thanks to all of my colleagues uh, and to the USIP team. This report issues a strong warning that ISIS is not defeated. ISIS has simply changed its model of fighting for now, uh, and it is not a long-term uh, problem, but a short-term problem uh, before ISIS actually revives itself inside of Iraq and Syria. You have heard this from every speaker so far, and I will say it again. ISIS remains an insurgency inside of Syria, and ISIS is a living entity 
uh, within the detainee facilities and the IDP camps in Syria. We are talking about a population, uh, as our speakers have said, of more than 70,000 human beings in an IDP status and 10,000 fighters in an annexed facility, uh, 2,000 of which are foreign fighters. Okay, so far we're talking about 80,000 people and 2,000 foreign fighters. And then scattered throughout Northeast Syria, we have 10,000 additional ISIS fighters in small makeshift facilities that are not properly guarded, that have only perimeter security. And ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has issued a statement as of the 16th of September calling for his forces inside those detention facilities to break out of their prisons. ISIS will decide the time and place when it will move from the phase of the war that it is now in to the next phase of the war. And it has potentially, in the camps itself and in the prisons, 90,000 people who may support it and who are at least vulnerable to radicalization. This is an imminent national security threat, and the United States must help address it. The Syrian Kurdish and Arab partners, but particularly Kurdish partners within the SDF, do not have the capability to secure these facilities, nor will they prioritize ISIS as a threat uh, if the Turks continue to move against their territory uh, and bring military resources to bear to cleanse them ethnically. This is an urgent warning. Kim, I'm going to ask you one follow-up. You described the threat and what it means for ISIS to transition to an insurgency and the threat within the ISIS detainee population. Why are, why are, are U.S. boots on the ground important as we conceive of how to address this threat? Thank you, Dina. Uh, first of all, the U.S. presence in northeastern Syria is one of the things that actually guarantees the continued partnership with the Syrian Democratic Forces. Uh, we are a glue that holds northeastern Syria together. Secondly, uh, U.S. forces have outstanding capabilities that far exceed what the Syrian Democratic Forces have. Uh, we have special forces on the ground uh, who have unique capabilities. Um, and our presence is absolutely necessary vis-a-vis -vis these threats. Thirdly, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces are not actually trained uh, to counter insurgency. Uh, U.S. forces are trained to do that. Uh, I would assess personally that we may not have the right mix of forces on the ground to counter this insurgency, but we are not going to find success against the threat I described simply by looking to local partners or simply from the air. We actually need to be on the ground to hold this together and respond in a timely fashion to the threat that awaits us. Thanks, Kim. Melissa. We've talked a lot about the SDF, our local partner, the Syrian Democratic Forces. So our report calls on the SDF to govern more inclusively so that, quote, an alternative vision for governance, resource allocation, and security in Syria can be realized. 
We also talk a lot about ramping up civilian engagement in northeastern Syria. So building on Kim's insights about the nature of a counterinsurgency mission and the insurgency threat from, from ISIS, can you walk us through why we are also recommending an increase in civilian engagement? Absolutely. Um, thanks so much, Dana, to you and to Mike for your leadership of this group, uh, to USIP for the stewardship of, of this process, and to Congress for app appointing a bipartisan uh, commission with gender parity and that is cross-generational. Um, it's been an honor. Sorry, I had to get that in. Um, <laughs> in terms of uh, the importance of, of civilian engagement on the ground, um, in, in our estimation uh, for our strategy, it really hinges upon supporting local governance in areas where US partners have territorial control and the United States has reliable relationships that can, at minimum, improve conditions for stability for civilians, um, Syrian civilians in the short to, to medium term, such that if a political settlement is reached, it can, can, this area can connect to Syria's center um, with the aim of compelling changes in governance over the long term. This will require sustained US political commitment, um, but it's with an eye to achieving that end state that, that Dana mentioned, a, a new social political compact for Syria. It's a long-term vision, but the seeds of it exist in northeast Syria right now, albeit tenuous. There are some concrete steps, however, that um, the SDF is going to need to take um, with U.S. And, and coalition support in order for us to get here. Um, Americans should, should know uh, the sacrifices that our local partners in Syria have made over the last five years in encountering ISIS. A generation of Syrians in this area that have sacrificed their lives, their communities, um, to rid this area of, of a global scourge. Um, and we should recognize that um, and, and uh, make good on our commitment there though recognizing the risks that are inherent in that and, and be willing to create the space um, for them to, to having an enduring relationship with other actors in, in the region. Um, to that end, um, and recognizing the considerable pressures that our Kurdish partners currently are under, um, given Turkey's position on these issues, we do recommend um, several steps that the SDF needs to take. Um, I believe that these are consistent with uh, the policy framework that the SDC has laid out, um, but in our estimation, um, it's, it's really to transition from being a very effective insurgent group uh, to being a capable, credible, responsible security provider. Um, and that means um, severing links with PKK leadership um, and removing them from positions of, of authority in the region to open the space for political negotiations with Turkey over the long term. That's a necessary step. Allowing civil society and journalists uh, to, to work freely and, and report on transparency in, in, in the region to ensure local governance structures represent populations, dem the demographics of the populations um, with, with diversity, um, and ensuring that resources can flow equitably to the, the range of communities in the area, uh, seeking the promotion of PKK ideology um, and enabling civilian population freedom of movement uh, to the IDP camps, 
and increasing communications and transparency for NGOs and humanitarian organizations, uh, particularly in the Al Hol uh, detainee area. Thank you, Melissa. Vance. The serious study group's recommendations on Russia assume that ultimately success from Putin's perspective is rehabilitation of the Assad regime, reconstruction of the Syrian state, and the return of Syrian refugees from abroad. Can you walk us through why our group and report assesses that these are Russia's objectives for Syria? Put another way, because this is a question that we've gone through over and over and over. Why is the status quo not victory enough for Russia? Why does Putin care at all about the condition of the Syria state? Well, first of all, thank you, Dana. Let me uh, echo my, uh, my, my colleagues in thanking you, our co-chair, uh, Mike Singh, the USIP team, um, for um, the real leadership that, that you've uh, demonstrated over the last several months in shepherding this process. Also say thank you to the many representatives of the US government officials who came and shared their insights uh, with, with us. Um, while I think that this report uh, is obviously uh, issues a set of warnings and criticisms, uh, the respect that we have for the people inside the US government who over the past many years have been laboring and struggling with what is um, unquestionably one of the most uh, difficult foreign policy challenges uh, that we've confronted, certainly in this generation, um, is tremendous. Um, you know, I want to say briefly also, Senator Shaheen mentioned this was one of the, the last uh, legislative uh, projects of Senator McCain. Um, and um, I, I had the privilege of working with Senator McCain just as the Syria crisis was beginning. Um, and I do think back to his lonely warnings then about how this could all unfold. Um, and as we look back, uh, it should be a reminder to all of us the importance of American leadership, of statecraft, and the urgency of action, which is what this report now tries to put forward. On the question of Russia, um, as, um, as Mike Singh put it earlier, there is a bipartisan consensus that's emerged in Washington that great power competition uh, is at the very top of American national security priorities. Uh, this report lays out clearly how Syria is an arena for great power competition, um, and that how Russia has exploited the conflict in Syria to reestablish a status of a great power in the Middle East. A decade ago, if you traveled in the Middle East, Russia was a largely a peripheral presence. As a result of its intervention in Syria, it has been able to rebuild a credibility, not only in Damascus, but also with respect to historic American partners and allies across the region. Uh, it has weaponized refugee flows. It has worked to undermine uh, US alliances and partnerships. Uh, you see this with respect to Turkey right now, as it's tried to use the events in Syria and its position there to pressure uh, Ankara. Now, there is a view um, that one hears uh, that the path to peace in Syria runs through Moscow. Um, our report did not endorse uh, this view. Um, while uh, we believe that we must, of course, always be open to the possibility uh, that there could be some sort of uh, understanding reached with the Russians, uh, I think that our report took the position that this needs to be aggressively tested 
and that uh, simply by trying to pursue Moscow and through expressions of goodwill is unlikely to succeed. On the contrary, um, particularly the view has also been put forward that there might be some sort of grand bargain with the Russians that would push out the Iranians. This is also something that our report declined to endorse um, for a variety of reasons, foremost beginning with the skepticism that the Russians have the capacity or the will to push Iran out of Syria for the foreseeable future. So what should we be doing with respect to Russia? As you said, Dana, we took the view, we believe that the evidence is considerable, that while the Russians have exploited Syria <coughs> to their advantage, they are not capable unilaterally of resolving the war. Bashar al-Assad has not won the war. They are not unilaterally capable of rebuilding the country. They do not have the resources to do this. They also look at the continued US presence, and it is a constant reminder of their own failure to be able to consolidate success in Syria. So for all of these reasons, the US does still have instruments of pressure against the Russians. We recommend continuing to put greater pressure on the Russians through sanctions on the Assad regime, through exposing their information operations, and while the primary focus of the US presence in northeastern Syria, the reason for it is counterterrorism. The fact is that the US presence in northeast Syria is an additional source of pressure and leverage against Russia in the unfolding great power competition across the Middle East. Thank you so much, Vance. That was pretty good. <laughs> A plus. Fred. One of the arguments that we've heard that circulates in, in Washington against the strategy that our report is recommending is that actually more lives would be saved if the US military withdraws from Syria and allows, or at least does not block, the reconstruction of the state while facilitating agreements between Damascus and remaining communities not currently under his control. So can you walk us through why our group is not recommending this approach? Why is it that more lives could be saved if we simply step back and facilitate um, Assad taking over the rest of Syria where our military presence is blocking that from happening? Uh, well, Dana, I'll do my best. And since we are in uh, thank you mode, uh, <laughs> I would like to uh, direct my thanks to the uh, members of the audience who uh, took the time to show up today and uh, hear us out and I, uh, I very much look forward to uh, hearing your questions. Um, my, my initial reaction to this is that I, I think, Dana, uh, the idea that lives would be saved by somehow being complicit in helping a violent regime restore its rule uh, to all of Syria is flawed, to say the least. Uh, the United States as coalition partners have invested five years and considerable resources to destroy the ISIS caliphate uh, in eastern Syria. Neither the regime nor its allies contributed to this fight. Indeed, the relationship of the regime and the caliphate was more often than not one of live and let live. Assad gave the caliphate a recruiting asset. The caliphate gave Assad a chance to proclaim, this is my enemy. 
my colleagues and I in the, in the Syria study group came to the conclusion that sealing the victory over ISIS and excluding the regime and its allies from liberated territories were essential in terms of countering transnational terrorism and maintaining some degree of Western leverage in the search for political, peaceful political compromise and political transition in all of Syria. Now we could, I suppose, tell our, tell our Syrian partners that we're done. Uh, they can make the best deal they can with the Assad regime, and yes, we'll be thinking about them and uh, wishing them all the best, all the while knowing that the Assad regime uh, will keep no promises and that many people will disappear. Uh, then the next time we need local partners somewhere in the world to counter a transnational uh, terror threat, uh, we can try to argue that uh, Syria was a special case, that only in Syria, only in Syria would the United States abandon combat partners to a violently lawless enterprise uh, that helped give rise to the enemy in the first place. What would, be, what would be we be getting uh, for giving up uh, the leverage in search for a peaceful negotiated political transition in Syria? To date, we've been able to work with coalition partners, including local Syrians, to minimize the cost to American taxpayers and to uniformed American personnel in northeastern Syria. Uh, obviously, the part of Syria we're talking about, and this has been mentioned, it contains very valuable, pardon me, agricultural and petroleum uh, assets. Uh, it contains people who have suffered under ISIS, who fear the return of the Assad regime and its Iranian allies, and who have worked uh, with the United States to erase, at least provisionally, at least provisionally, the ISIS uh, Caliphate. I think that abandoning this part of Syria to Assad and his Iranian allies could have catastrophic consequences. Uh, to say that residual ISIS forces would welcome the return of an illegitimate, violent regime would be an understatement. Two opportunities would present themselves uh, to ISIS. First, a successful insurgency, enjoying a measure of popular support. And second, potential employment opportunities uh, by a regime and an Iranian ally who have long histories of employing uh, Islamist terrorists for their own uses. Uh, moreover, the gifting of eastern Syria to the regime in Iran would facilitate the latter's ability to move men, weapons, and equipment into Syria and beyond into uh, Lebanon. Um, if we're serious in the end, if we're serious in trying to leverage a good outcome for all of Syria, political transition for all of Syria, we're not going to give this leverage away and we will try to the best of our ability to support a governance alternative to Assad growing in uh, northeastern Syria. Thanks. Thanks, Fred. Okay, before we go to audience questions, 
We're going to do one more round here, and I'd like to ask each of you to highlight one element of the final report that, in your view, merits particular attention. So something we didn't discuss yet that you want to shed some light on. So same question for everybody. Reverse order. Yeah. Fred. Okay. Okay. Well, I, to you. Um, I, I wrote Very down. I wrote down some passages from the. I'm just going to. I'm just going to quote the passages because I think we're limited on time and I want to get to the audience. There are two passages uh, in this report that I would, uh, I would draw your attention to. Uh, one is on page 17, quote, conduct during the war in Syria has established a precedent in which civilians can be targeted and bombed without meaningful international repercussions. Assad has seen and understood this, as have Russia, Iran, and the rest of the world. A world that accepts this precedent would be antagonistic to American values, hostile to US interests, and dangerous to our national security. Such a world would routinize mass civilian homicide as a survival strategy for dictators and raise recruits for extremists all around the world, unquote. Page 48, quote, this is part of the recommendations, seek to deter the Assad regime by warning that the use of chemical weapons or other forms of civilian targeting could bring a military response. Retaliatory strikes for regime mass civilian casualty operations in Idlib and elsewhere should be approached as a last resort, best conducted with allies. Still, the credible threat of military force and its exercise buttresses diplomatic efforts to deter and counter Assad regime state terror. Neglecting such deterrence feeds the regime's sense of impunity with devastating effects in Syria and beyond, unquote. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, beat that. Um, I think that one of the most powerful ideas uh, in the report, which, um, which Kim already uh, has alluded to, um, is that ISIS has transitioned to an insurgency, but that the United States has not transitioned yet to counterinsurgency. Of the most sobering discoveries, I think, for me, over the past few months um, has been uh, what is a, candidly a sense of deja vu uh, from things uh, we've seen uh, elsewhere, uh, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, when we achieved uh, what appeared to be uh, a decisive success only to discover far too late that the enemy, rather than giving up, had innovated faster than we did. Um, if there is a, an, uh, a, a urgent warning embedded in this report, it is precisely that there should be no complacency about not only the continued threat posed by ISIS, in the abstract, but that the tactics and strategy that ISIS has adopted 
in Syria and in Iraq, at the moment, appears to be ahead of us. Um, that's actually a perfect segue uh, to, to what I was going to, to comment on, um, this, this idea of shifting the mission and the focus from counterterrorism to, to counterinsurgency, because there's a tendency to place Syria in the forever war category with Iraq and Afghanistan, and particularly in today's political and budgetary environment um, and, and the legacy and introspection happening, um, rightfully so, in Washington and amongst our allies in terms of what we have learned from those experiences and how they, they continue to, to manifest. In reality, the current approach in Syria is far different. It's a much smaller, smaller U.S. footprint um, operating within a coalition framework backed certainly by U.S. air power and critical enabling functions that Kim described earlier. But really, our Syrian partners are in the lead in a way that, um, at least until later in the game in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, is, is quite different. Um, and, and what our Syrian partners have achieved um, on the ground with our, our support should not be discarded with a premature withdrawal um, and should be instead buttressed by non-military tools. I think the, the strongest takeaway from our report is to sustain the military uh, commitment, but really ratchet up our diplomatic, economic, information, and judicial or accountability tool sets um, that are fully within the writ of US statecraft and those of our allies and partners. And it's weaving that together and backing it by US leadership that are the missing ingredients in the Syria problem set. So this is not a return to US policy of 2018. This is not in the forever war category. This is something fundamentally different. And we have some of the right ingredients in place. As Dana mentioned, we have the tools in our toolkit. It's about exerting concentrated US leadership in concert with our allies and partners to bring them to bear on this critical issue set. Thank you. My colleagues have said so many eloquent things, uh, and I really want simply to reemphasize that we have seen in Syria the consequences of inaction, and we have observed in Syria uh, the consequences of delaying till later uh, or hoping that somebody else will take care of a problem. Um, instead of recognizing uh, what has been an escalating threat. We are not in a safe position in Syria, even now, even if we hold tight uh, on the policy reins that we have. We are in a situation that is dangerous, and it requires leadership, it requires sustained effort, and it requires a vision uh, that recognizes that US strategy takes time, it takes effort, uh, and that whether or not uh, we are at any given moment um, done with a war in our minds or our hearts, that war is not done with us until our enemies and adversaries so decide. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now we're gonna open it up to the audience. We have people with microphones who will come to you. Before asking your question, 
please let us know who you are, identify yourself, and if possible, direct your question to a specific member of the panel. Um, and since we have a large audience, I can see lots of questions and not unlimited time. I am begging you, ask a targeted, concise question, i.e. do not make a statement. I don't want to cut you <laughs> off, but I will. <laughs> Thank you. She, Let's she's uh, tough, start so. down here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Doğan Işık from Turkish Embassy here. Uh, your report says PKK is a designated terrorist organization and says PYD is the Syria branch of PKK and YPG is the military arm of PYD. That's in the box on page, I think, 33. So how come legally US government provides arms and material support to YPG, and how, how can that continue even? That's my question to Ambassador Hoff. To me, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky friend, yeah. Uh, since, uh, you know, since late 2014, for a variety of reasons, perhaps some of which uh, involved the, uh, you know, the readiness of, uh, of Turkey uh, to, the, to assist the United States with the degrading and destruction of ISIS, uh, the United States formed a relationship uh, with a partner force inside Syria. This all stemmed, the beginning of this was the siege of Kobani, as you well know, in, uh, in late 2014. That partner force uh, has, uh, in many cases, performed uh, with uh, bravery and with combat efficiency against the enemy that two presidents of the United States decided was going to be defeated. Now, our group recognizes that this has, that this has caused a very difficult reaction and a fully understandable reaction from Turkey, given the identity of the, uh, of the force. Uh, it's, it has been a terrible dilemma. We have recognized that now as we are moving into a new phase in northeastern Syria where ISIS is transitioning to insurgency, we have to get the YPG out of the business of trying to govern in predominantly Arab areas. Unfortunately, now we have, a, uh, we have an agreement with Turkey uh, for joint patrolling uh, in, the, uh, in the north. So it's been, a, uh, it's been a difficult situation for two administrations. It's presented a tremendous dilemma because uh, I think there is full respect uh, for the importance of Turkey as a NATO ally. Let's go on. I have the microphone. Can you hear me? No? I think so. Yeah. Yep. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, my name is Wael Sowa. I'm president of uh, Pro Justice, uh, an NGO that's focused on accountability and prevention of uh, impunity in Syria. And my question to Kim one of the recommendations says uh, until conditions inside Syria improve, Assad and his allies should be denied, and then you count what. what what 
the United States needs to do in this case. What I really do not understand, what does improve mean? What's the level and who decides that level when we say, okay, now the situation has improved and we can remove the sanctions and we can continue our contribution to maybe a reconstruction or, or, or diplomatic relations or other stuff in Syria. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, it is absolutely important to hold the Assad regime accountable for the terrible crimes that it has committed against its own population. But uh, we can actually truly say what uh, the standard of improve is not. The standard of improve is not that the Assad regime controls areas uh, in southern Syria or in Damascus and causes the disappearance of refugees who return. It is not improved in Syria uh, if the Assad regime uh, can continue to conscript its population with impunity or terrorize its citizens uh, in their homes uh, and deter uh, the voluntary return of refugees. That is not enough, and sadly, that's where we are. So we, as a group, uh, recognize that we, as an international community, have a goal. It is a good goal, but conditions are not now set to meet that goal. The Assad regime has not shown itself willing or capable of holding to those minimal standards of justice and accountability and safety for its citizens. And so we, uh, as an international community, should not let go of that requirement now by any means. There's no doubt that you have presented an incredibly compelling uh, report on the urgency uh, of U.S. Uh, leadership in Syria. Uh, the United States, though, deals with many foreign issues, countries. Do you have a sense, is this more important than China? Is this more important than the EU? Where do we, where do we, I don't want to say rate, but where do we put this in the state? Perhaps our Russia expert might be the best person to answer yes. that, because yeah. Russia is a really good example, too. Where yeah. do we rate this issue? Where is its priority? And can you tell us who you I'm are? I'm sorry. My name is Juliet Wur. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. Thank you. So I, I think it's a great question. Um, I think that the challenge is that the world is, is more complex than being able to kind of come up with a BuzzFeed list of here are the top 10 problems facing the United States in order. Right? Um, what we've seen in Syria, and, and particularly if you've worked this issue from day one, was that actually at the beginning there was this assumption that what happens in Syria is going to stay in Syria. And so therefore, yes, it's a, it's a horrible human catastrophe, but it's ultimately a, a regional issue. It's a national issue. 
What we've witnessed over the course of the last few years, however, is that Syria has also become uh, an issue for Russia's place in the world. It's become an issue that has had a dramatic impact on the politics of our European allies in the EU. Right? It's had a dramatic impact on our homeland security, and on international security from international terrorism and ISIS. So I think that what we've found, and I think what our report tries to argue um, and lays out, uh, in particular in our section, about why Syria matters, is that when you have um, a, a place where the most basic rules of this thing that we call international order are violated in the most spectacular way, it won't stay local. Right. Now, what the precise effects will be, how it will spill beyond its borders, those are very hard to predict, but it won't stay where it is. And so the, the severity of the abuses that have taken place in Syria, the use of chemical weapons, the use of industrial weapons of war against a civilian population, right? These are the sorts of things that intrinsically are so violent to the fabric of everything that we as the United States have historically believed in that they have systemic effects. Right? And so that's the way I think that we, we've approached this issue. And um, to, to quote uh, one of my colleagues, almost whatever framework you start with, whatever your priority is, the transatlantic relationship, great power competition, counterterrorism, Syria implicates it. Right? And that's because of the severity of the abuses that have taken place there and then the effects that that has unleashed. We're going to take two questions at a time and let's pay some attention to the middle. So just, let's see, there's one right there. Generally, the middle is neglected in Washington. And <laughs> there. Yeah, and then... Can, Hi there, I'm Erica Hanacek with Americans for Free Syria, and Dana, everyone, thank you so much for doing this report. Uh, I wanted to bring the findings of the report to an announcement today. Secretary Pompeo was talking about a chemical weapons attack that the U.S. intelligence community just verified from May. Uh, and the attack happened just three days after U.S. officials uh, had underscored at the U.N. Security Council that the U.S. would take these you know, chemical weapons attacks very seriously, including the use of chlorine. So in your report, you talk a little bit about upholding these international norms. With the announcement today, what do you anticipate our next move will be and what it should be? Thank you. Okay. So, and let's do a second. Yes, hi. I'm uh, Joel Charney from the Norwegian Refugee Council. Um, I'd first quickly, I, I really object to the characterization of the population of Alhol camp as basically 70,000 people who were ready to be radicalized or forming the vanguard of a future ISIS force in, in Syria. My question is, what is your strategy as it relates to these camps? We, from a humanitarian perspective, have recommendations that we're happy to make in a, in a, for an effective way of approaching these populations. But my concern is if you're predicating your analysis on the idea that we've got 90,000 future ISIS fighters, 
what's your strategy? I, I don't understand how you could have a strategy if that's your premise. Okay, on the, uh, on the report, which I, which I think I heard just before we began uh, today that uh, Secretary of State has announced that there was another chemical attack. Um, I, I suspect, if I, if I were forced to bet on this, um, I suspect there will be a military response uh, by the United States. Uh, there have been two military responses, one in 2017, one in 2018, to chemical attacks. Um, I think the, uh, I think, I'm speaking for myself, but I think as a matter of consensus within the serious study group, this would be seen um, as proper. Uh, the study group also mentioned uh, in one of the passages, I think one of the passages I quoted, uh, that this is not this is not just a matter of chemical weapons. This is a matter of mass civilian slaughter. Chemical weaponry has accounted for under one percent of the Syrian civilians slaughtered by this by this regime. Um, I think there uh, there will be a response in this case. Uh, but I think the United States also has to take into account the fact that uh, Bashar al-Assad is uh, perfectly free to conclude, as long as I don't use chemical weapons, I can use anything else I want, when I want to, where I want to. Uh, the continued use of chemical weapons, though, in particular, I think demonstrates a, uh, a very particular, very specific contempt for the international community. Thank you very much uh, for your question on the uh, internally displaced persons and particularly those at Al-Hal camp. Uh, let me stress that this is indeed a humanitarian tragedy. ISIS uh, has recruited, imprisoned, enslaved populations uh, in its conquest of the territories that it seized. And there are undoubtedly thousands upon thousands of innocent people uh, in those internally displaced person facilities. But we also must not be naive and ignore the evidence that ISIS is deliberately trying to radicalize the women and the children in that camp. We have anecdotal evidence repeatedly of the uh, ISIS uh, Hezbollah police women uh, actually brutalizing other women and brutalizing camp guards. We have observed the truly tragic phenomenon of children very often under the age of 10 uh, actually engaged in radicalizing activities uh, they have been subject to viewing executions. This is tragic, absolutely tragic, uh, but it is also a vector for radicalization. And therefore, we actually need to take both humanitarian and security steps in these camps and in these facilities to protect the innocent, to help to uh, restore the lives to the thousands of stateless 
children who were born under ISIS control uh, and to make sure that this population uh, is not untreated and not further radicalized. And to that end, uh, Melissa Dalton is going to talk to you about some of the specific recommendations that we have for both humanitarian and security measures in an all-whole camp. Just briefly, because I know we have some other questions in the audience. Joel, thanks, thanks again for, for the great question. I think um, all of us, if I can speak for, for the group, were truly shocked um, by the lack of coordination and coherent policy approach to the detainee problem set and specifically the situation in El Hol, um, which is why on page 44 of our report we have a set of concrete recommendations uh, for the U.S to take on um, with its allies and working with partners on the ground. Um, Senator Shaheen mentioned that in the forthcoming National Defense Authorization Act, there is going to be a central coordinator designated uh, for the detainee problem set um, that we hope will concentrate that, that policy um, interagency coordination and bring together what, what I know has been um, a set of difficult conversations in terms of prioritizing um, humanitarian and security interests and objectives um, in, in the short and, and medium term um, and the conflicting views of, of those communities. Um, and I know a lot of concerted work is going on behind the scenes in the interim to try to, to address those. But um, hopefully the recommendations on page 44 give some food for thought. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. We have time for one more round of questions. So the first one is going to be right here. And the second one. Thank you, ma'am. There, there's one right down. Moaz Al Khatib, the former president of uh, Syrian co coalition. Thank you very much for your uh, meeting. First, I like to talk about ISIS. It's extended, extending every day. Why? Because we concentrate about the results and do not concentrate about the reasons. The reason for a, uh, coming of Daesh, ISIS, or something uh, similar. It's the keeping of silence for a long time by all the administrations about the dictatorial regimes in the area. Dictatorial regimes growing up, helping to grow up all these uh, ISIS groups. This is first. Uh, ISIS now so strong, uh, extended more and more, extended to Nigeria, to Niger, to uh, Egypt, uh, to Philippines, to India, to Afghanistan, and many other places. You must concentrate about the reason. Second, we notice there is many of confusion inside the American administration. There is no clear vision about Syria, now I am talking, and we pay that from blood of our nation. The time it's linked to the blood. People pay from their life, and the generations which will come with days, it will grow up inside unfair situation, and it will be more fanatic and remember my words, one day you will say ISIS, it's so easy comparing with the coming uh, very fanatic uh, groups will come with time. Third, there okay, is really have a question. Very, very human problem. And I will mention just name of a pilot, his name, Raghid Attatari. He spent till now 38 years. Do you imagine that 38 years in the prison of Al-Assad regime? After a court, have just one minute. We need your help to release him and release all the people. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go over here next. 
Hello, my name is Charles Depot. I'm a visiting fellow at the Washington Institute. Um, my question is for Melissa, and I would like to pick up uh, on what you said about the, the notion that Syria should not be labeled as a forever war. Um, I've heard there were some elections next year in, in America, and we've already saw like, some debates about getting out of all these forever wars. So I would like to, to follow up on what you said and ask you whether you think the nuance you're making about Syria uh, can be heard in an environment when we might have some polarized discussions uh, in America, and if political leaders and uh, just the public debate in general uh, will be able to hear this nuance or if this case is lost somehow? Thank you very much for, for the question. Um, yes, I, I hope that um, you know, this can be the beginning of a conversation in terms of being precise about um, the types of missions, the types of uh, focused tasks that our military is undertaking in a place like Syria vis-a-vis -vis our ongoing efforts in places like in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, certainly, it's viewed through the counterterrorism lens, so there is some conti continuity in that sense. Um, but because it's, it's a much smaller footprint, it's a much different mission set, um, it's really, at least in our formulation of this group, just one part of a, a broader strategy um, that I think it is fundamentally different. And it's best viewed, I think, through the, the by, with, and through reliance on local partners approach that um, personally, in, in my day job, I spend a lot of time trying to uh, uh, build out frameworks for. There's a lot of work that needs to happen on the US government side um, to ensure that we conduct these types of partnerships in a more responsible way. Um, but I think that that's a better lens to, to apply to, to what is currently being undertaken in Syria. Let me just respond very quickly to, to this question. One, one fascinating thing, when you look at polling about American attitudes on foreign policy, one uh, thing comes through again and again and again, which is that um, preventing terrorist attacks on the United States continues to be the top priority, if not uh, one of the top priorities of the American public, uh, above China, above Russia, above many, many other things. Um, viewed through that prism, my personal view uh, is that making the case for a continued engagement in Syria, given the threat that we have seen from ISIS when we are not engaged, is something that is politically sustainable. So we have five minutes left for this part of the event. There's one right here. Yeah. And then we'll go right up here. And, and yeah, and, I'm, and I apologize to everyone else. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, Mohammed Ghanem with the Syrian American community. Uh, beyond the Northeast, and based on the cautionary note sounded against the normalization of mass uh, slaughter, sounded in the passage that Ambassador Hoff quoted. How did you approach the critical issue of uh, civilian protection in Syria? And were the recommendations formulated or based on what there is appetite for in Washington, DC, or uh, what ought to be done in your analysis? Thank you. Thank you. 
thank you, Dana. My name is Noha Kamshe. I work for an organization that works primarily on governance in the Northwest. Um, very straight to the point question. I know we've talked about this, uh, Ambassador Hoff, but I'd like to ask you this again. Uh, what is the likelihood for the U.S. government to re-engage in the Northwest and in collaboration with uh, the Turkish government? How do we connect the Northeast and the Northwest? Uh, different divided narrative of civil society and governance, and how is that tied to the political process right now? Thank you. Okay. So Melissa is going to take the civilian protection issue, and then we'll go over to Fred. Yeah, and Fred, feel free. I know you feel strongly about the civilian protection issue as well. Um, look, I think it's um, it's incumbent upon the United States to stand firm with our principles and values um, in terms of our diplomatic pressure, the exposure of those actors that are violating these norms in Syria, um, in terms of judicial accountability um, through individual state uh, war crimes prosecution um, and then resetting those lines of, of deterrence. We also have the recommendation in our report in terms of follow-on action if those lines are, are crossed in Syria. Um, I think also on the table should be the degree to which evidence can be built towards um, sanctions or other punitive steps, um, non-military, um, but, but that can continue to expose and put pressure on the actors that are violating these, these norms. Um, and, and providing the, the funding for um, and protection for outside organizations, Syrian expats, um, other governments that are trying to do the hard work behind the scenes to, to make the case um, for, for prosecutions to, to come. I, I think in addressing your question and perhaps the, uh, the statement of uh, Sheikh Muaz, I would, I would highlight uh, one passage from the report that Dana mentioned uh, in her opening remarks. The group believes uh, that the best end state in Syria is one in which a Syrian government is viewed as legitimate by its own population and has the will and capability to end Syria's dependence on foreign forces, prevent terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in my view, uh, this passage gets to the heart of the matter. The center of gravity for the destruction of uh, Syria and all that has arisen from it, whether it's ISIS, Al-Qaeda, waves of refugees, hundreds of thousands of deaths is the presence of a violently illegitimate regime featuring state terror. Now, the United States is not seeking violent regime change in Syria. I think there are, I think there are great practical difficulties right now in the United States exercising strong influence in northwestern Syria. I hope, I hope that we will continue or really reestablish our support for civil society in that part of Syria, which would be under, under the most difficult conditions imaginable. People resisting both the regime and Hayat Tahrir al-Sham and whatever, whatever else is there. Uh, but the central point, I think, is that as long as the Assad regime persists, it's not going to be possible to prevent terrorist groups from thriving on Syrian territory, 
And indeed, this regime is an expert uh, practitioner and supporter of terror. Thank you. And I apologize to the members of the audience who did not get to ask your question, but I'm happy to give you the email addresses of the panelists <laughs> or even their cell phone number. But we, we want to engage as much as possible with those who are interested in reading the report. Um, so please, please follow up with us. We are happy to discuss with you both um, what you think is the strong recommendations of our report and also the criticisms. Now Mike is going to come and wrap up, and the panelists, we're going to stay right here. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I, and I can tell you that they were not nearly this polite or agreeable behind closed doors in our meetings. Um, well, I think, look, this discussion illustrates just how difficult and contentious some of these issues can be, frankly. Syria presents not just one, but a multiplicity of tough policy challenges. And this report really represents our best uh, effort to uh, address and to provide a way forward on those policy challenges. There have been a lot of reports from a lot of fine institutions and, and very smart people in this town on this particular set of challenges. And I think that for us, one of the sort of most valuable things about this report is that it's a bipartisan report. Um, in fact, I would call it in a way nonpartisan in the sense that the discussions we had, the debates we had, um, were not partisan discussions or debates. These are hard issues, and of course, um, people can disagree on them. Um, but I would hope that this is a, a set of issues uh, that will unite and unify folks here in Washington. And if we can just, if our report can simply elevate the issue a bit in the political consciousness amid everything else which is happening, uh, that will have been a success. The other thing that I hope we can do is to call some attention to all the amazing work, frankly, that is being done both inside the government, um, inside the sort of international aid community, as well as uh, outside those communities on this. Uh, I was Syria director at the National Security Council back in the mid-2000s. I've been following this issue for a long time. Um, but I still learned a lot uh, about Syria and about what's happening uh, through the course of all the briefings we received. But I think more than anything, I learned just how many people are engaged in trying to help, uh, in trying to solve the problems in Syria. I think Syria, in a way, um, the conflict we're seeing um, presents us with some of the worst of humanity and has for the past eight years. Um, but I think we can also see, see some of the best of humanity and the aid workers uh, that are inside Syria, that are in uh, Turkey and other places, uh, trying to help those who have been affected by the conflict in the policy officials uh, who are working very hard to solve the very thorny challenges uh, Syria presents, as well as in the activist community here in the United States uh, and elsewhere um, who are also lending their voices to this. Many of, you, of those people are here today or watching, uh, and so I really want to express our thanks and our admiration uh, for all of you. I do want to say one other thing, though, and I want to close with this. Um, obviously, Syria is not just a policy challenge. Um, in Syria, we have, over the last eight years, had hundreds of thousands of people uh, lose their lives. Um, in terrible ways. Um, we uh, have lost um, uh, dozens of American troops. We've lost um, people like James Foley and Stephen Sotloff uh, to terrorism. Um, there are millions of Syrians who have been displaced, either driven from Syria or displaced within Syria. There's 11 million or more Syrians who are in need of humanitarian aid, and that humanitarian aid um, has come only partially frankly, and so we have people who are in desperate need. Um, we are all sobered by that reality, 
uh, sobered that this is not just a policy challenge, um, but uh, represents human suffering on a really um, tragic and remarkable scale. And so we hope that um, the U.S. government, our partner governments, um, and all those uh, organizations which are represented uh, can really just not serve our interests, our national interests, which are important, uh, but can serve uh, the cause of peace in Syria. So with that, let me say thank you to the U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, and thank you to my colleagues, and thank you to all of you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usrp.org backslash podcasts. Thank you for listening to this event.